We are actually going to turn our attention this morning now to God's Word, and we're starting a new series on the Ten Commandments. If you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been studying the book of Titus. Titus was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his friend and ministry partner, Titus. And really, the letters in the New Testament are a response to the big event in the New Testament. In fact, the biggest event in the history of the world the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul writes these letters to tell young Christians, hey, this big event has happened, here's what to do now. Well, we're turning our attention now to the, the Old Testament, to the Ten Commandments, and maybe if you've been a little bit scared of the Old Testament before, you've thought, well, I don't know what to do with kind of all those old stories and all that stuff. Let me remind you, we're actually doing the same thing. Because the Ten Commandments are a response to the big event that had happened just before. God had rescued his people from Egypt. The biggest event in all of the Old Testament, in fact, we would say the biggest event in all of the world up until the time of Jesus had just happened. And the question is, what do we do now? So if you will open your Bibles or follow along with me on the screen above, let me read to you from Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be going through the Ten Commandments one by one this summer, but I'm going to read all of them now so that we can get to know them better. So here's Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall do labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to God, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to you to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. So the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. 
We are grateful for the way that it changes us. We ask now that by the power of your Spirit, you would enable us to come and stand under it, to bow to the authority of your Word, to be changed and molded and shaped by it. Lord, open our blind eyes and unstop our ears and soften our hearts that we might see you more clearly, that we might see Jesus and our need for him, and that in doing so, we might love him more. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. We're going to talk really this morning about the concept of rules. It's an interesting question, I think, to to bring up. What, What do we really think about rules? The Ten Commandments, of course, probably the most famous rules in the world, although maybe they've fallen a little bit out of our public conscience. There was a study done in 2007 that said that uh, more Americans actually know the ingredients of a Big Mac than all of the Ten Commandments. Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, sesame seed bun. Maybe the Ten Commandments just needs a good jingle. Maybe that's what we need. But if you do think about the Ten Commandments, if you do think about the concept of God's law, if you do think about the concept of rules in general, what do we do with them? And especially this, how do they relate to the concept of freedom? What's the relationship between rules and freedom? And I'm using freedom in the broadest possible way, the good life what it means to flourish as human beings, how we find our true identity and how we find joy and happiness in this world, freedom. What's the relationship between rules and freedom? We kind of break it down into two categories in our culture. There's the folks who think that the way that you find freedom is by accomplishing the rules. You find out what the rules are You make sure you do all the rules and keep all the rules, and then you will find freedom. Then you will find flourishing. You will find life. You will find identity. You will somehow get a taste of the good life. But here's the thing. Not only have we forgotten a lot of the rules, in a lot of ways, it's hard to even know what the rules are anymore. We've got rules that are changing all the time, and we've got new rules, and within those new rules, they're even kind of conflicting. We're not even sure what to do with them. A few years ago, a book came out written by a couple of atheist humanists, really in promotion of secular humanism and atheism. Probably don't want you to have that one on your night's uh, table uh, to read every night. But it was interesting what they did in promotion of this book. They kind of took a poll, and then they put it out as question on the internet saying, okay, if we were to replace the Ten Commandments, what would we come up with? What's our new set of Ten Commandments, they actually called them the Ten Non-Commandments. Here's how they read. These are the new rules. One, be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Not bad. Two, strive to understand what is most likely to be true rather than to believe what you wish to be true. Command three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Four, every person has the right to control of their own body. Five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Command six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Seven, treat others as you would want them to treat you and in a way that you can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Command eight, We have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. 
Command nine, there is no one right way to live. And then command 10, leave the world a better place than you found it. There's some new commandments for us. Maybe you recognized a few inconsistencies. Like one of the rules that said, you don't really need God in order to live a good life, and then two rules later they quoted Jesus. That was interesting. Or maybe this last few that says that, A, there is no one right way to to live, and then right after that says for us to leave the world a better place than when we found it. Well, what if I don't want to leave the world a better place? Is that a right way to live? So not only do we not really know what the rules are that we're supposed to follow, but really even inside the rules, there's oftentimes conflict. We're not even sure how to follow the new rules or where they are. So maybe that's not a great option for us. How about the second option? Instead of following all the rules, obeying all the rules as my pathway to freedom, maybe freedom is found in me letting go of all the rules. Maybe freedom is found in me just kind of eschewing, casting off, disregarding any kind of rule. This is probably the most popular way that our culture understands the concept of freedom. And if you look up on Wikipedia, you'll find an answer kind of like this. Freedom is the right to act according to one's will without being held up by the power of others. It's to determine things for yourself. That's how we understand freedom usually. And, you know, the church can sometimes maybe inadvertently latch on to this new cultural understanding of freedom, too. Because sometimes we say things like this, attempting to really promote Christ, we say something like, you know, Christianity is not about rules, it's about relationship. You ever heard that? Sounds nice. It sounds like what we want to do is promote relationship, but really kind of what we're doing is we're saying, yeah, you know what, the Old Testament where that God who was all kind of rulesy and concerned with what everybody did, and he was kind of angry all the time and really just kind of grumpy, and he was this rules God. But in the New Testament, now we get the God of grace and love and relationship, and we don't have to worry about the rules anymore. Is God divided? Is God different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament? Spoiler alert, he's not. So maybe that's not the best way to think about rules and freedom either. So what if there's a different way? What if there's a different way to understand the relationship between freedom and rules? What if we started with freedom as the setting for the rules, and we ended with freedom as the goal of the rules? Did you hear that? What if we started with freedom as the setting, the beginning, and we ended with freedom as the goal, so that making sure that you obeyed all the rules was not the way to gain freedom, because you already had it, and getting rid of all the rules was not to gain freedom, because it's actually something that gives you more, not less, freedom. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to focus really on that one verse right at the beginning of the Ten Commandments before we get into any of the commandments at all. It's the prologue. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from Egypt. I am the Lord your God who has bound himself to you. Now, let's talk about the rules. So the setting. What do we mean when we say the setting is freedom? Well, again, there's a reason why I started there with verse 1 rather than with the first commandment. 
Because before God says anything about what thou shalt or shalt not do, he talks about what he has done. Let me remind you where we are kind of in the history of God's people and in the Bible here. We're in Exodus, so God has created, of course, the world, and it's been broken by sin. He's called Abraham in Genesis 12, and he's told him he is going to use Abraham, grow him into a great nation, and that nation is actually going to be God's vehicle of blessing the world. The way that God is going to love and bless and care for the world is through this people. But over the course of many years, they do grow, and they land themselves in Egypt, and over the course of about 500 years, they are slaves in Egypt. So when we open up the book of Exodus, we find God's people making bricks for Pharaoh under forced labor, hard to be the blessing to the world if you are held captive by another nation. And so what God does is truly amazing. Through Moses, he reveals himself to Moses and to his people, and he uses Moses to go tell Pharaoh, I want to take my people out so that they might worship me, so that they might feast with me, so that they might know me better. Of course, Pharaoh doesn't really want to lose all of his free labor, so he resists, and God, through his mighty power and these incredible miracles, these plagues that he, uh, that he, that he puts on Egypt to rescue his people. We get frogs and gnats and the river turning to blood. We get death kind of everywhere, really culminating in the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. But God cares for his people. Not a single drop of blood is shed in his people. He rescues them out of Egypt. He delivers them through the Red Sea, parting the waters and bringing them through on dry land. He takes them out into the wilderness. He's giving them a new place. They're on their way to this new promised land. And when they are hungry, he feeds them with bread from heaven. When they are thirsty, he gives them water that springs out of a rock. He cares for them. He loves them. He rescues them. He frees them. And then he says, I am the Lord your God who has rescued you. This is the setting. Do we pause enough to think about that? That we don't get any command until we get, as we talked about last week, the indicative of God's incredible grace before we get any kind of imperative. Uh, Joy and Hampton just actually came back from freshman orientation. My son going off to college, it's kind of scary. And freshman orientation, those of you who have or have had college students now, you know, right, that's the time where they bring all the freshmen in and they tell them the rules. Maybe you can even remember your own freshman orientation way, 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 way back in the day. And you gather them all together and they say, okay, this is where you eat and this is where you stay and this is how you study and these are the classes that you're supposed to go to and I'm not sure I heard that one during freshman orientation and uh, this is the way to be a college student, right? These are the rules. These are the things that kind of bind you. This is what makes you a college student. Here's the rules. But who actually gets to go to orientation? Who hears the rules of what it means to be a college student? Not everybody. Just those who have been admitted into the school. Those who have become, by someone else's declaration, students, then get told the rules of how to be a student. See, it doesn't work the other way. You can't just learn all the rules of being a student and then hope to get admitted because you did it all right. You actually have to get admitted first and then they give you the rules. 
the rules are the setting, or excuse me, being a student is the setting for receiving and observing the rules. Of course, freedom is the setting for us if we are Christians. If you belong to Christ, what was true of God's people there in Exodus is also true of you. Because you have been rescued from the dominion of darkness, you have been rescued from sin and death, and you have been brought into freedom and you belong to Jesus. If your faith is in Him, you have been freed. It has been done and there is nothing you can do to make it any more free or any less free because Jesus has done it for you. Can I get an amen on that one? Yes. And so now what do we do? Paul says in Ephesians 2 that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. And it's then and only then that he goes on to say, now here's how to live in the freedom that you've been given. Friends, let me just pause and say if we get this wrong, we get all of Christianity wrong. If we somehow mess up this equation and we think that it's our obedience that earns us God's pleasure, that it's our obeying the rules that gives us freedom, that it's our obeying the rules that even will give us the good life in some way, if we get that wrong, we get the whole thing wrong. Because the beautiful proclamation of the gospel, the reason it's good news is that Jesus saves us, and then we are called to obey. Freedom is the setting, and freedom is also the goal. So let's turn our attention to that. Freedom is the goal. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you an illustration. This is something you can find probably in an obscure academic journal called Netflix. It is called The Lego Movie. Maybe some of you have seen it. And in the Lego movie, if you've seen it, you know, you get this great picture of actually both legalism and lawlessness. You get that picture of what it means to kind of have that equation wrong, and you find it in, in, the, uh, in the antagonist in the movie, the villain. His name is President Business, and he goes around telling everybody what to do all the time, and he's got this firm control over everything, and nobody can ever get outside the lines, and you have to obey all the little rules in order to earn any kind of favor with President Business, and he... He rules with an iron fist. But there's actually another negative example in that because our antagonist, a little guy named Emmett, uh, ends up one day in this place called Cloud Cuckoo Land. It is this Lego world where there are no rules at all. And everybody just builds whatever they want and does whatever they want. And he ends up running into this weird combination unicorn kitten cutest combination of anything you could ever find, uh, as, as you might guess. Her name is Princess Unikitty. And I'm just going to read you what Princess Unikitty says here to Emmett. Hi! I've got to, like, do it in Princess Unikitty voice. Hi! I'm Princess Unikitty, and I welcome you to all to Cloud Cuckoo Land. And as Emmett watches all this unrestricted partying, he says this. He says, so there are no signs on anything. So how does anyone know what not to do? And Unikitty cheerfully explains, here in Cloud Cuckoo Land, there are no rules. There's no government, no babysitters, no bedtimes, no frowny faces, no bushy mustaches, and no negativity of any kind. And then one of Emmett's friends um, replies, you just said the word no like a thousand times. 
And then you and Katie smile sweetly, and she says, there's also no consistency. So we get this picture, right, of what it means to throw off all of our rules, and in the Lego movie, it actually doesn't end very well for Cloud Cuckoo Land and Unikitty. It kind of all crumbles down at the end. And oftentimes, I think we think, we think like Unikitty, if we could just get away, get away from all these rules, if we could just cast off all these restraints, if we could somehow find some way to live unrestrained, then certainly we would be happier, wouldn't we? Certainly we would be better off. But here's the thing. What if we have the entire concept of sin and rules completely wrong? See, sometimes we think sin, that's the fun stuff I want to do, and God doesn't want me to do it because, you know, He's God and He's got these rules and stuff, and He's a little grumpy because we still have this Old Testament kind of understanding of what we think God is, and because He's a little grumpy, He doesn't want me to do the fun stuff, and so He gives me rules of how not to do all of the things that I really want to do that are going to make me happy in the end. And maybe some of us, if we're Christians, we think, you know what, okay, fine, I'll obey the rules, I want to make them happy, I want to kind of be a good guy. I want to kind of look right to my neighbors and my family and everybody, so I'll obey the rules. But deep down, I kind of just want to do the sin stuff. Isn't that the fun stuff? But what if we have it wrong? What if sin's actually the thing that will destroy us, and God actually loves us enough not to want us to be destroyed? What if sin were the things that actually, instead of leading to freedom, and flourishing in our lives were actually the thing that led to bondage? What if sin was actually the thing that led to death? What if sin was actually the thing that God knows is going to destroy us, and like a good mother or father says, don't play in the street, not because I don't want you to have any fun, but because I don't want you to die? What if God is actually loving and caring for us, and He gives us constraints so that we won't die? Think about a fish swimming in a fishbowl, sitting maybe on your counter. And think about all that can happen with that fish. You feed the fish, he swims, he looks really happy, he gets to swim around, do fish things. But he's got one really big constraint in his life, doesn't he? It's the bowl. He can't go anywhere because he keeps hitting the side of that bowl, he keeps hitting the glass. The bowl is the constraints in his life, for sure. But you know, the bowl is also the freedom, isn't it? Because if you break the bowl, then you've got a puddle of water on your counter, and you don't have a fish for very much longer. Now, I know half of you are thinking, okay, is there another option? How about we release this fish into the ocean where he can be really free? All right, let's go with that for a second, okay? Because even in the ocean, there are constraints, right? We can't put the fish on the grass because a fish on the grass is not going to do so well. If we free Willie and really think we're freeing him, we're actually going to kill Willie, And even in the ocean, when he's in the water, what happens to fish? They get eaten by other fish. Our little willy is going to get eaten by that big orca willy, okay? And it's not going to go so well for our little willy after we freed him into the ocean. And not to mention that, but friends, this idea that we can live in the ocean is simply just not true. We live under constraints. If you have a job, you live in the fishbowl. If you are married, you live in the fishbowl. If you have children, you live in actually a very, very small fishbowl. We are those who are given constraints, and here's my point. They're there because God loves us. 
God has actually given us boundaries, not because he hates us, not because he wants us to be less happy and less free, just the opposite. Because he loves us and he wants us to be more free. Freedom is the goal of the rules. You know, there is a, a law that is at work in me. It is the law of diminishing eyesight. And as I get older, I'm doing this thing a lot more often, right, that I saw my parents do, and like I'm asking people to read menus for me. It's really bad news, y'all. I'm uh, watching a lot more, uh, you know, um, four o'clock television and, you know, Pat Sajak and that sort of thing as well. But there is another law at work, and it is the law of glasses. I don't like the law of diminishing eyesight. I wish it weren't true, but there's nothing I can do to change it. I can't get rid of it. But there is a more powerful law, and it is the law of these glasses. And when I put on these glasses, the law of the glasses overcomes the law of diminishing eyesight. And there's a new law now that is work, at work within me. And here's the incredible irony. Me actually holding myself to this law does not give me less freedom. It gives me more. If I were to discard my glasses, I would not be more free. I would be less free. When I actually submit myself to the law of the glasses, I can see better. The same is true for us spiritually. Freedom is the goal for us. When we submit ourselves to the beautiful way that God has laid out for us, we actually find more, not less freedom. When we submit ourselves to God's beautiful picture of what it means to live as truly human, what it means to actually truly flourish as human beings, what it means to live the good life, we become more, not less free. Let me close with this. Because while freedom is the setting and the goal of the rules and of the Ten Commandments and really of all of God's Word, there's also another stop we've got to make. Because as we see freedom as the setting, as we see freedom as the goal, we understand the freedom rules and we need to also understand the king of freedom. Because that is one of the major intents of God's law is to drive us to God's Savior. See, here's the dynamic that when we open up God's word and we look at something that says, you shall have no other gods before me, and we realize if we're honest, wow, I've done that like probably 16 times this week, then where do we go? Well, we go to Jesus. We come on our knees to the foot of the cross, and we get to come there and say, Lord, I cannot even keep one of these laws for 10 minutes, but you have kept them all, and your grace is abundant, your mercy is more. And so we come and we bask in the beautiful grace of Christ. Let's put this image up here. This is what it looks like, is that when we come to God's law, it is supposed to drive us to the cross. We see in ourselves the way that we break it. We see in ourselves the way that we fail. And so we come to the cross and we kneel before the cross and we say, Jesus, I need you more today than I thought I did yesterday. But here's the incredible dynamic that's at play, actually, in the Bible. Let's put the second one up. Is that when we leave the cross, where do we go? We go back to the place where we are to be formed. We come back to the goal that we might be transformed by the power of God working through his word, that we might become more like Jesus. That's astounding, isn't it? 
as we go to the cross and we celebrate the setting, we celebrate the freedom, we celebrate the forgiveness, we then are driven back to be conformed into his image. Friends, let me just leave you with this. The setting of freedom and the goal of freedom are given to us by the God of freedom. I want to invite you to consider something today. That God is neither an unkind taskmaster that never wants us to have any fun and is just trying to exert some power play over us, nor has he given us a list of things that we have to accomplish in order to get into his good graces. He has actually given us one who has accomplished it for us. He has set us in freedom. He has earned it for us, and he has called us now to come and to live into that freedom in dependence on Christ. That's what we're called into today. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're thankful even for the ways that we get to see our sin. Even for the ways, Lord, that we get to, to see the depths of how we fail you because it pushes us to you. It points us to Jesus who has done it all for us. But Lord, we ask as those who are leaving the cross that we might be conformed to the beautiful way that you have laid out for us. That we might see your rules, your law, your commandments as not something that we are to either achieve or to discard, but Lord, as something that is meant to change us. Will you help us to embrace that by the power of your spirit today? We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.